everyone, this is Must Go Faster, a pop culture podcast for the people. I'm your co-host Ben Brandlinger, broadcasting from Brooklyn. And I'm Robert Denfeld, out in Long Beach, California. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Dave Chappelle and his new stand-up specials on Netflix, as well as the trailer for the upcoming movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. We'll also react to the comments from director Brett Ratner on the value of Rotten Tomatoes, and touch on the new single from Kendrick Lamar. But to kick things off, we're going to talk about Spoon and their new album, Hot Thoughts. That was indie rock band Spoon with Hot Thoughts off their new album of the same name. Uh, This album came out a few weeks ago, and it's actually their ninth studio album. So Spoon has been releasing records since 1996, which is, I think, the year Lord was born. Uh, We (laughs) talked about her a few episodes to kind of give you some perspective. So, you know, I've seen this, uh, this media narrative online about how they're the most consistent rock band of the last 15 to 20 years. And it's really hard to argue when you consider their discography, the critical acclaim, how popular they've been with fans and just the consistency of their songwriting. You know, they've never had a smash hit. I would say that song, Just the Way We Get By, which was from the OC, if you remember that show, and oh, yeah. a bunch of indie rock bands throughout. Uh-huh. That was, I think, the kind of the biggest quote-unquote hit they had. But um, to me, like the success of Spoon is, is very simple. They're really just a group of guys who are really sol- solid songwriters, really good at their instruments, have a nice ear for production, and have just been doing this for a very long time. So mm-hmm you know, for 20 years. And that's really refreshing to see just the guy, guys who just know their roles in their group have been writing songs together forever and are just like, this is what they do. There's no gimmicks. There's no, you know, they're not controversial. They're just like really good rock songwriters. Right. Um, so yeah, this new album, Hot Thoughts, Rob, uh, what, were, what were your initial thoughts on it? Yeah, um, I agree with what you said. They're just a consistent band and, you know, they, they pump out good, solid music that is, you know, it's hard to hate on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, I've, I know we've gotten some feedback from listeners saying that we should be a little more negative on things and like give our critical commentary a little more. But uh, it's not going to start with this album for me. I, I love this album. Um, mm. You know, yeah, it starts with the title track, which we just heard, the uh, Hot Thoughts. And it's a head bobber. It's, you know, atmospheric. <laughs> sort head of. bobber. It's a great. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great jump off for an album. Um yeah, so I just, I like it all the way through. Yeah, I think it's very, um, the album kind of has this meditative and like groovy vibe, I would say like more so than past material. There's kind of long breaks of music without vocals. Um, for example, the song Pink Up has this really cool like extended intro uh, that I really like. And there's a lot of like electronic elements throughout throughout the album, right. I think more so than their, their past work. And I think Hot Thoughts, again, yeah, the track we heard earlier is is the standout song on the album. It's a great intro song. Um, it's catchy. It's interesting musically, uh, lyrically. I think the lead songwriter, Britt Daniel, he does a good job of giving you a sense of place in his lyrics. Um, like I think he mentions like uh, 
Shibuya or a town in like Tokyo <laughs> in the second verse uh-huh. of the song. I forget the exact town. And okay. just like actually, that, that's kind of like a lot of his lyrical styles, like really yeah. putting the listener in this like sense of place, whether it's like street names or, you know, what he was uh-huh. specifically doing at that moment. And, um, you know, another thing about the, the lead singer, Britt Daniel, is vocally, he actually. This this is going to be a pretty bombastic statement, but <laughs> he kind of reminds me of John Lennon in like just the sound of his voice, kind of like yeah. the raspiness of his tone. I don't know. He he sings with emotion. He really means it. And I just like this raspiness. I, it really sounds like John Lennon more than anyone else to me. If you check out their song off their, their album prior to this, uh, it's called Do You. I think people will know exactly what I'm talking about, especially in the chorus. And if you haven't dived into their discography and you're a fan of rock music, I uh-huh. highly recommend it. Uh, I remember you telling me about to, that to song. Dive through. Yeah, nine yeah, albums. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of work to go through, but it's all. <laughs> I mean, it's all of the same, you know, essence and like they have their they have their style. But this one, this album is a little more uh, sort of like I, I don't want to say catchy and like poppy, but it's it's more of a like upbeat throughout and, and kind of fast paced. Uh, but then mm-hmm. it, they mix in a few like slower uh, sort of haunting tracks. Um, I, I think uh, Pink Up, you said, is a little slower. Um, mm-hmm. I Ain't the One is kind of a like haunting undertone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last song, Us, number 10 on the album, is it kind of breaks away from the rest of the album a little bit, but it's it's like sort of earthy tones and it's a an instrumental throughout. Uh but it's a really I thought it was an amazing way to end the album it kind of it just felt right and and sort of like washed over me at the end of the album uh it like <laughs> com- it completes the feeling I guess I I said like on the first the first listen through it 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 worked and um you know it kind of felt like I was at their concert and they they just ended like with this slow melodic uh sort of tonal uh instrumental and I like I like closure in an album, so <laughs> it was uh, a good way to sum it up for me or wrap it up, I guess. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I I like the tr- last track too, but yeah, I, the sense of closure and I, I know what you mean, like feeling at a show, like this kind of like ah moment, like of just yeah, okay, things are things are it okay. Felt like this, right, right, totally. And I think just um. Out of their whole discography, I would say actually their album in 2014, They Want My Soul, is my favorite. And actually, I was kind of like a late spoon bloomer. Um, (laughs) I didn't really get fully into them until this album in 2014 came out. And I I really liked the first singles. And I heard a lot of critics talking about it as kind of being their most like rock heavy Uh album. And it's that's like super consistent i i definitely recommend anyone listening to this if they haven't to check out they want my soul in addition yeah. to hot thoughts yeah yeah one note of criticism i want to say is can you imagine when they came up with the name for their band like spoon <laughs> spoon it. yeah like we're used to it now yeah but, you know it, it, it's like it's it sounds fine since there's this cool band attached to it that have a great sound but right it must have been a hard sell when they were first teasing the name out well, with like their inner circle what like, did you say about this name <laughs> spoon yeah what did you say their first album or when did it come out 96 yeah yeah so when did the Mid- matrix yeah. come S- out when did the first oh. Matrix come out? Because I was just <laughs> thinking, like, maybe theory. it's from that scene where he, you know, Keanu <laughs> bends the spoon or that little kid in the uh, in the Oracle's uh, uh, little waiting room <laughs> bends the spoon. I was curious yeah. <laughs> if maybe that there was a link to that. <laughs> Doubtful. Um, well, I feel like this. I feel like Matrix was like, cl- like a little later. The century, like a 99. Yeah, 99. So that would have yeah. been man. That would have been crazy. If they were <laughs> I wonder. By that. 
Cinematrix, oh. but uh well i wanted yeah. to mention also uh their website spoontheband.com um just researching this album uh, i stumbled on their website and it's just a great website uh so just you know shout out to a well laid out site um <laughs> all the links it's yeah spoontheband.com uh they have links to the album you know where to stream it where to buy it um, and for the vinyl heads out there, they have information on uh, the various vinyl uh, editions of this album that you can buy, including a, a red vinyl that's coming out on Record Store Day, <clears throat> which is April oh, nice. 22nd every year for uh, you know vinyl people out there. Um, and also, I wanted to mention they have their, their tour dates listed. Um, they're playing the Hollywood Bowl out in L.A. for people out here um, on yeah, August Yeah, they're doing 3rd. a couple of big festivals this summer as well. Yeah, for you, they're doing the uh, Panorama Festival um, in, in yeah, New York. Yeah, July. <clears throat> and yeah. then, um, wait, is that in New York? Yeah. 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 And then uh, they're doing another festival in New Jersey, the Exponential Festival, uh, actually the next night, July 29th. Um, and then in Virginia, for all of our Virginia friends and family, um, they're playing uh, the Sprint Pavilion in Charlottesville on July 19th. And then they're playing Meriwether Post Pavilion in maryland on july 30th so it's nice. one of your favorite uh, for, venues yeah. if i recall yeah our, exactly for local cool. listeners uh you can check out you know a spoon concert this summer potentially nice. so uh that was spoon and their new album hot thoughts rob and i definitely recommend you check out that record in addition to for their sure. old discography if you haven't dived in so we're gonna switch gears keep in the music world but uh switch gears in terms of genre i would say and uh, talk a little about uh kendrick lamar oh. I put my foot on the gas, head on the flow, hopping out before the vehicle crash. I'm on the road, yelling one, two, three, four, five. I am the greatest rapper alive. So damn great. So that was uh, Kendrick Lamar's new single, The Heart Part 4, uh, which came out on Friday, March 24th. And it's on all of the streaming platforms uh, of your choice now. Um, so the night before, I guess Thursday, uh, Kendrick released sort of a cryptic post on social media that just featured the Roman numeral uh, four. And, you know, it was obviously a tease for this song, The Heart Part Four. Um, So it's the first song off his uh, new album, which doesn't have a title yet. Uh, Well, at least we don't know what the title is yet. Uh, And at the end of this song, he hints at the album coming out on April 7th. He has a, a a line says, y'all got till April 7th to get y'all S together. So yes. <laughs> uh, just sort of, yeah. One can uh, assume leading, that an album is coming, into, dropping then, yeah. Yeah, it's a tease. <laughs> so, you know, the internet chatter is that the album will come out April 7th. Um, and so this song, it's it's five minute long, you know, five plus minutes long, uh, switches between four beats, all made by four different producers, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, it's a pretty intense listen, uh, yeah. definitely. So my first listen was over coffee and a, a, a baked good, <laughs> and maybe not maybe not, not the, the best way. Scenario, right? Yeah, what I had to shouting at me. I had to yeah. give it a few more listens and let it sort of seep in, and uh, you know, listen to the lyrical performance and precision by Kendrick on this one. But uh, yeah, yeah. So what were your what's your takeaway from this song? What do you think? So yeah, I mean, based off this single. Um, and assuming that this is the first single off this album that's coming on April 7th, which we'll, of course, do a full deep dive on that album and review uh, when that uh-huh. happens. But, you know, this album could be anything. As you mentioned, there's basically four different beats throughout this song. Kendrick switches flows, vocal tones. There's no chorus or any hooks. There's not even like 
you know, it's not like there's a verse one, verse two. I mean, it, it really is pretty sporadic. So right. it doesn't really give you an indication about what kind of sound this new album is going to have. And, you know, to Timba Butterfly, his last album that came out in March 2015, was so different than the album before that Good Kid Mad City was such a progression. And um, yeah, I mean, I really like this song. Like I, I could honestly spend like an hour talking about what I what I specifically like about this. I kind of want to save yeah. it for when the album drops. But um, I think it's interesting that, you know, Timbun Butterfly, I mentioned it didn't come out that long ago. So March 2015. And I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that he's coming out with a new album so soon. Uh, last year, he dropped Untitled Unmastered, which was basically a collection of B-sides. Right. And um, I don't know. I'm just... I, I thought he was going to maybe take like three to four years to put a new new record out. I think rappers, pop artists of that stature take a long time to put out material. Mm-hmm. But I think this just means that he couldn't really wait any longer. I mean, a lot's been happening in the world in the last year, and Kendrick just wanted to give his input and couldn't wait any longer. And so I could see this album release being kind of expedited of Kendrick being like, no, like, uh, telling his label like i know i said next year but i need to put this out now right and he's my favorite rapper right now who's in the prime of his career so i'm you know it is an understatement to say that i am extremely excited for this nice. release when it happens yeah and getting back to this song uh it's it's definitely you know very politically driven at, at the end you know mm-hmm. so it starts out the first beat is is a little more laid back and chill and then the second beat, it's a little more of like a conflict rap and in your face a little bit. And then it goes to like this politically driven and honest, uh, you know, a lot of cultural commentary in there. And it's really interesting the way you, you said Kendrick's your favorite rapper right now. I think, I don't know if he's my favorite rapper, but he's definitely, I appreciate him as sort of the the most technically proficient rapper making yeah. music right now. It reminds um, me it's of just Eminem like in a lot so, of ways. Yeah, um, definitely. The way he he like switches up his styles and and just his lyrical content, his vocabulary beats, is crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's almost like his personality and mood changes on this song, like between the beats. And it's really mm-hmm. it's it, like his his audible voice, like the way it just sounds, uh, changes based on the beat, which is like you know he just like turns it on and off, you know. And and that's <laughs> yeah. like you said, Eminem. He used to do that with like you know, Marshall Mathers, his little like alter ego and Slim Shady and, you know, switching between voices and like yeah, five like different the, times the on the song. voices in your head that he kind of spills out on record. Right. It also reminds me of Biggie small. I know like one of your uh-huh. favorite Biggie songs is uh, Give Me the Loot. Give Me the Loot. And I remember yeah. we once had like a, an old like argument in college <laughs> of like, you were saying like, it's the same rapper throughout the song because he gets so high pitched in one of the verses. And I was right. like, no, that's someone different. And we like looked it up and sure enough, yeah, like Biggie, he had that kind of diverse vocal range as a rapper to like sound like completely different people within one song. And Kendrick does that so well. And in this song, it's very evident. Yeah. Like Jay-Z kind of does it on 99 Problems. He's doing like the the pop voice. And yeah, it's not as much like constructed like that, but it's, it's just really interesting to hear somebody almost like change their personality based on what beat is in their head you know it's just kind of (laughs) kind of haunting and he's he's so he's so good at it and uh so he definitely doesn't have a you know lacking in self-confidence and exuberance on this (laughs) song you know he really like puts it out there and he definitely thinks he's the best rapper going you know which is which is fine that's part of rap um yeah but yeah. yeah um so the album that's coming out uh apparently 
there's there's been a leak of the the track listing and it looks like it's going to be 14 oh. tracks um i did not and see have that a, Oh yeah, I, I saw it in an Shoot, article. Uh, I forget text me that later. <laughs> okay, yeah, I forget what the outlet was. I just uh, copied and pasted yeah. the track listing, but uh, it's 14 tracks, um, and some of the guest features are really big, exciting names. Um, so I have here Kanye West, Andre 3000, Anderson Pac, Q-Tip, and D'Angelo plus plus others. So Damn. and obviously yeah, some that, exciting producers. Out, yeah, if that all checks out, I mean, God, that's like a a wish list yeah, those are like some of my favorite rappers who. ever yeah. like yeah i mean wow that's plus that's like awesome. d'angelo that'll yeah be an interesting song i'm sure definitely and we'll be doing a, a deep dive review once that album drops so we want to move on to talk about some stand-up comedy and one of our favorite comedians dave Chappelle, and his uh comeback specials on netflix i've been gone for a very long time Surprise, it's me. Be the people. I still be in the rear, yo, we don't need it. Now ISIS is number one on the terrorist charts. If ISIS catches you, they're going to cut your head off. I've seen them do it on YouTube. Don't like. Last week, Dave Chappelle uh, released two hour-long specials uh, titled Deep in the Heart of Texas, which was filmed in Austin, and then The Age of Spin, which was filmed in L.A., and I think it's important to know with these specials that they were the Texas special was recorded in 2015 and the L.A. one was shot in 2016. So these shows were already recorded when Netflix approached him and offered him reportedly 60 million dollars yeah. for three stand up shows. <laughs> so Chappelle didn't even have to do that much work. Like he's he's recording a new one to fulfill this deal. Uh-huh. But the other two, like he already had in the bag and was just like, oh, here you go. Right. <laughs> um, They're in the can. So I think. Uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about here, uh, but one thing I wanted to point out right off the bat is there hasn't been as much buzz about these specials in the first week of release as I thought there had been. That uh, as I thought there had been, uh-huh. um, it's been growing. That buzz has been growing slightly since release, but uh, I was expecting a bit more considering he's kind of like the defining comedian of our generation. Chappelle's show was this uh-huh. just iconic piece of pop culture that still resonates now you know 10 years later sure and i think these comebacks are kind of tricky uh since there's been a lot of time passed uh since the last time he did the uh, a stand-up special oh yeah it kind of reminds me of like i don't know i i was thinking of like when anchorman 2 or like the sequel to zoolander came out when those were first announced you're like oh this is this is going to be awesome these are right. like beloved comedies of the early aughts and of course, both those movies turned out to be bad. The quality wasn't <laughs> any good. And I think that's probably the biggest uh, driver of the bad or the lack of buzz that those received. Uh-huh. But um, I don't know. I, I kind of got reminded of that. And like, I think if, you know, Chappelle had come out with the, the these specials three to four years after Chappelle's show went off air and maybe it would have been buzzier. I know he hosted uh, SNL earlier this year. Um, and that kind of suppressed the buzz a bit, yeah. Uh, given that he was already out. Well, that in, was that like, was late limelight. late 2016, right? Or late 2016, yeah. When right, yeah, right after the election, and it was yeah. with uh, with a tribe called Quest and their album tribe. release, yeah, yeah, right, right. And you know, I think there's there's been a lot of media outlets that have covered the release of this, uh, and. My roommate pointed out that they've been kind of like PC reviews, like for example, Vox, the media outlet was kind of uh, bothered by how provocative the content was. And I don't know, my reaction to that was kind of like, do you know it's Dave Chappelle, right? Like you've seen Chappelle's show. Like this is yeah. what Dave specializes in. 
But uh, yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to check out the Texas special, but I checked out the LA one. Really enjoyed it. Um, Rob, what were your what were your reactions from uh, watching these specials? Yeah, so I mean, Chappelle's career is a very interesting one. Um, like you said, he doesn't do a lot of a lot of work. I mean, I mean, that's maybe <laughs> so I'm Chappelle not. Show he's been chilling. <laughs> well, no, he doesn't do a lot of work that's out in the for public consumption. I, you know, you hear about him touring and and just doing shows, doing local comedy venues, and uh, you know, he lives in Ohio with his family and three kids. But his career, he doesn't really put out much content since Chappelle's show. Um, really nothing, honestly. Uh, he did he did the block party documentary sort of concert movie in 2005, but that was while Chappelle's show was still on. And, and since then, like, there's nothing on his IMDb page. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> yeah. uh, for public consumption, I guess. It's, it's uh, apparently this is his first recorded show in 10 years. So yeah. um, it's just an interesting career that he... Main, you know, he maintains this public persona and he's so culturally relevant still, yet he really hasn't been in the, you know, the culture, the mind's eye of... He hasn't put out content, you know, so it's kind of like... Yeah, there's just not not much out there for him, uh, for people to, to see of him. So he's sort of like this mysterious, uh, almost like... Uh, you know, caped crusader or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's know like, he's, mean. he's this comic that you just don't, you don't see often. So Mythical when you, figure, when you almost. hear he's putting something out, it's yeah, there's like an attached buzz, I guess, uh, on it. And, but like you said, he, he already had these first two in the can. He's probably just uh, waiting before... for, he, he, he must assume that Netflix or Hulu or Amazon was going to pro- approach him maybe uh, at some point given that how popular stand-up specials have gotten on these yeah and services yeah and i'm sure there were some rumblings and discussions about it and you know so if these two were in the can before they signed the deal with netflix uh they're really well produced and it's a good you know mm-hmm. uh well recorded uh stand-up special and it seems like you know he had the intention of, yeah, of putting definitely. it on netflix with everything except for the content i mean it's really it's almost like he's up there doing, you know, practicing things and and just doing like a local spot and and you know working out content a little bit. It's just it's mm-hmm. an hour plus of both are an hour plus of him on stage. It's obviously he's he's worked out a lot of the construction of it, but you can tell he sort of goes off the audience a little bit and plays on their reactions and plays on hecklers and there's an there's an instance in the second episode uh, which was actually recorded first, like you said, uh, the deep in the heart of Texas, uh, where a woman sort of heckles him, and he's, you know, he says, "You got to get your girl out of here; she's drunk or whatever." And uh, but he goes with it, and he he takes his stool and like sits in the front of the stage, and he starts just, you know, he really breaks the wall with the audience and just starts talking to them, you know, like hmm. pointing out people, and he asks for a cigarette, and just you know, people start throwing cigarettes <laughs> at him, and he lights it up, um, and he just starts smoking the cigarette, and you know, talking to them on the stool, and it, he's literally just—he's either like just telling stories, or you know, being himself on a stool with a mic, you know, in front of an audience. He's yeah, just—he's sort of just chatting. talking, and he's Dave Chappelle. Yeah, yeah and his timing with his delivery—he's so, so good at. Yeah, delivery it, it's, I of mean, some of the stuff is really yeah. explosive. Yeah, but I, I feel like for whatever reason, his his style and his persona and his his ability to 
sort of like say these things that other people would would cringe at or shy away from he's able he's able to sort of push the limits of what is politically correct at times and you know it's it's a sort of comedy that is necessary i think and and kind of will forever have an adoring audience um because because it need you know things need to be need talked to be about in the limelight yeah yeah and when comedy is attached to it i mean it's it's really important and vital i mean you need to be able to to laugh at things even if how right. like serious and kind of tragic some of these topics may be yeah um i don't know they need to be talked about and i think overall it, it's for the for the good even yeah even if at, it makes like, you, when feel you hear these jokes you may yeah totally um, that's interesting about the the Texas show. I didn't know that there was a moment where he engaged with the audience. Uh-huh. Very like it sounds like very intimate. Oh yeah. Um, for so sure. the L A the L A version is there's not a moment quite like that, but the way it's uh, the type of venue. So it was filmed at the Hollywood Palladium, and the crowd surrounds him, and he's kind of like standing in the middle of the crowd, almost like a rock concert where like people are just like looking up, and their their heads are right above the stage. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this, this LA special was, was pretty awesome. The delivery was so sharp. His punchlines are great. It's progressive. He, he talks about a lot of things that you really haven't heard comedians touch on, um, you know, or at least comedians that are at his level. Like you don't hear Kevin Hart, uh, (laughs) discussing some of the topics that he touches on. So obviously there's a lot of, um, a lot of race involved, Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby, you know, modern day history and kind of like the U S history of just kind of like how we became, you know, who we are today. Yeah. Where we are. Uh, He has this reoccurring bit about OJ Simpson, how he's met him four different times, which Uh I thought was, was pretty funny. There's a a bit about the transgender community that I thought was very funny. And again, like edgy and can make you feel uncomfortable, but I mean, it's not, it's never like malicious in his no. int- intent, you know? No. Um, he just, you know, he likes to push buttons and he's just, he's a really just great long form storyteller. Right. Like he's not, he's not like a one liner type of comedian. He, his style is he'll tell like this five, 10 minute story that'll have, you there may not be any laughs for like a few minutes, but right. like once he gets to the punchline and the details of the story and people coming in and out of it, it all pays off. Um, you know, another thing I noticed about this special is, you know, he definitely feels, he looks physically older, a bit more fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think it's physical kind of jacked. Was still, <laughs> yeah, no, he, he has actually, I was, uh, I think it was last night I, I like, I was Googling Chappelle to prepare for this episode and one of the, I put like Dave Chappelle, like, and you know how Google will populate what kind of searches you're looking for. Uh-huh. One of the top searches was like Dave Chappelle jacked. <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny. I was like, yeah, that's maybe, uh, yeah, people are, are searching for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think another thing about his joke uh, telling style is that I, when I was watching this special, if you actually read the transcript of his jokes, you just read them on paper. I don't know like how funny you would maybe think they are yeah. but when you pair them with his voice which is so charismatic and his voice his timing uh-huh. his delivery it just takes it to a level where he, he has no peers yeah and i thought that was like interesting that like a lot of you know on paper maybe like a louis ck who I, I love as well um i think on paper is like just as funny and he has good delivery but Chappelle, i think just that kind of that that separation of like, he really, you really need his voice, his right. delivery, which makes these jokes work. Yeah. If you read it on paper, you probably couldn't tell sort of where the punchline is and what is, mm-hmm. what is supposed to be funny. And, mm-hmm. but it's just about the way he, he delivers it. Like you said. Um, and I'll be interested to see 
so these two were recorded, um, you know, sort of before Trump was elected. Um, and so I'll be interested to see what this third special is, because yeah. these two are very politically and uh, politically driven, I would say. And and the, the opening of the show uh, starts out with this uh, sort of quick uh almost propaganda driven montage with like all the faces of political leaders over the past, you know, 50 years or so. And, uh, you know, some of the just really interesting, like raw quick hits of what's going on in modern society. And so obviously he's going to touch on Donald Trump and I'll be interested to see. And also with him knowing that this is a Netflix special, if he, if he sort of changes up his style a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if it's a different sort of delivery or, or structure. I hope it's not because um, I'm really just digging seeing him uh, on stage for an hour. You know, there's no gimmicks here. There's no there's no cutaways or bits or you know skits that they previously recorded. At least not on these first two. Um, it's just you know it's classic stand up. A man with a mic on the stage. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, and, um, and that's that's not what we're accustomed to with with you know the Chappelle show. Right. I think a, an interesting. You know, it it is like kind of you know stripped down performance as you say one one um aspect i wanted to point out is that his his fashion choice in the la version where he has he's wearing this jacket that has like the Chappelle show c on the on right. the right side and then like Chappelle spelled out on the front of his jacket and he used i just to wear ha- that on did he on the show yeah, yeah. okay or yeah. something I similar it to it I wanted to just yeah. kind of shout him out for keeping like the brand top of mind. And I was thinking like, <laughs> right. could any other comedian like pull that off that wore like an article <laughs> of clothing with just their last name on the front? Like right. maybe Chris they Rock. Their... But other than that, everyone would be like, you're a narcissistic you know, right. jerk. Like what? Um, but That's it works funny. for him. And I, I like that. Yeah. Um, well, and, on the, know, one... uh, real quick, on the second episode, yeah, he, yeah. he doesn't wear that. He wears, or I mean, it's it was recorded first, but the... The Texas episode, he just wears like a jean shirt and he, he makes mention of it in a really funny way at the very beginning. But uh, yeah, and I also wanted to, you were talking about the audience at the Palladium in LA. Um, I thought it was kind of awkward the way they were arranged and it didn't work. You could see all their faces. So yeah, it didn't too, work you know, that well like... for a recorded special. And I wonder if the fact that, you know, they, they didn't know for sure that it was going to be a Netflix special played into that, but, or excuse me, played into that. Um. I didn't like the way you could see all their faces and their reactions to his jokes. And, and he kind of looked uh, or seemed to feel a little awkward with them, like right there. And the Texas special, it's more of a, a classic traditional stage where they're, they're sort of below and it's darker, uh, but they could still, you know, reach the stage if they wanted to. But I, I thought the, uh, the construction sort of production wise was, was better on the Texas special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, another thing I wanted to just point out about just like the stand-up special in general is that when you're filming a stand, you know, comedians know going in, okay, this is going to be my special. There's going to be cameras on. We're producing this. You essentially have to be perfect for an hour. Right. Like, I think there's minimal editing in these things because it's not like I can't see these comedians when they're on stage be like, uh, you know, they say they mess up a joke and don't get the reaction they want. They're not doing like a do over there or saying like, oh, let's do that again. Like they need to perform like it's a, you know, one of their any of their other shows. But they know that everything is being recorded and that this is their shot to like create their content. I know. So it just like adds a ton of pressure and like, you know, unlike, you know, seeing like a live concert of a band perform like, you know, there's times in between songs where they can kind of like uh, 
you know, delay or fix things yeah. or you can kind of hide behind your distortion on a guitar and like comedian, like literally every second you own the audience and you, you really can't like just the margin for error is so slim. I think I know. compared to almost like any other type of performance art. And uh, I just wanted to, that was something I was thinking of as, as I was watching his LA stand up. I can't imagine the the pressure you feel before going out on stage to do an hour. And just knowing, and, yeah. Yeah, a recorded <sighs> yeah. special. And especially yeah. something like this where it's sort of, it's such a loose construction and that's his style. Like you can't really tell where one joke ends and another begins. And you can't really tell if like this is what he had in mind. You know, is he just riffing on what's happening in front of him or like how jokes are going? You can't You can't really tell with Chappelle. Like other comedians, you can really tell okay, like he, he had this natural progression to the next joke and, you know, it's flowing nicely and one thing sets up another. With Chappelle, it's like 10 minutes later, you're like, how did we get here? You know, where is he just talking, you know? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so right. Is this just it, it's gotta be conscious? Yeah, I'll be interested. I'll be interested to see the third special, just if, uh, if the tone is a little different and if he, if he seems more nervous or more self-aware, you know, that this is going to reach such a huge audience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, we'll be, we'll be looking out for that third special coming. Um, he hasn't recorded it yet, but it should be coming out later this year. Oh, he hasn't even recorded it. I, I don't believe so. The other two he had. Oh, recorded. interesting. And so yeah, yeah, this will be, and it'll be interesting because he'll be able to like measure the success of these two, uh-huh. see the reaction from the media and fans, and then uh-huh. and then do a new one. So yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, so yeah, uh, next we wanted to talk a little bit, a little bit about uh, a new trailer that came out that caught our eye. It's called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and it's the new movie from Martin McDonough, who directed In Bruges. The more you keep a case in the public eye, the better your chances are getting it solved. And when I see the sign... You know, if you hadn't stopped coming to church, you'd have a little bit more understanding of people's feelings. All this anger, man. It just begets greater anger. All right, so that was a clip from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, and that was the uh, the Red Band trailer clip. And Very Red Band. So this... <laughs> Extremely red band. No kids allowed. Well, I mean, whatever. Kids hear cuss words all the time. <laughs> they can also, yeah, just watch it on YouTube, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so so this trailer was released uh, on YouTube a few days ago uh, by Fox Searchlight, who's the production company for this movie. Um, and the trailer, this red band trailer, is, is 2 minutes and 41 seconds. And I counted either 14 or 15 or maybe 16 cuss words depending on who you ask <laughs> over that two minutes and 41 yeah, seconds right. so uh it's it's nice. really uh it's heavy it, research right there yeah it's obviously we get, go we go above and beyond it must yeah, go faster we'll yeah. count the curse words in your trailer. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i did some tally marks um but yeah so you said this is directed written and directed by martin mcdonough directed uh seven psychopaths and in bruges and um this movie stars Francis McDormand, uh, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, and um, you know among others. And it looks Peter Dinklage as well. Yeah, Peter Dinklage, the Dinkles. <laughs> yeah, I saw him on there. Uh, so yeah, it looks like a really interesting movie. It's a really uh, explosive trailer, obviously, with the the red band trailers in your face and doesn't pull any punches and uh, i wanted to mention the very end stick around through the end of the trailer uh francis mcdormand has a really 
funny moment at the very end. I think you, oh, you know yeah. what I'm talking about when she, the definitely the way we will not she drives it, by. So yeah, it. yeah, I definitely can't say it on here. We'll get the we'll get the E symbol. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. So what's what do you think about this trailer? Are you excited for the movie? Yeah. So um, my ears first perked up with this trailer when I saw the uh, the Ringer Sean Fennessy, who's the editor in chief of the Ringer, called it the trailer of the year on Twitter, which I was wow. like, whoa, whoa. And I, I usually trust his taste, so uh-huh. I had to check it out and. Yeah, my first impression was getting a heavy Coen Brothers vibe, and I think that's kind of McDonough's style where he mixes like dark comedy with violence and quirky characters. And yeah, as you mentioned, tons of swearing in this trailer. I really liked the music placement. So this yeah. is a case that I'm sure, Rob, you, you get into where you're seeing a trailer for the first time and then this awesome song comes on that you're like, what is that song? And you scramble to like Google the lyrics and add it to like Spotify. That's what I did Uh with this song. So it's played in the second half of the trailer. It's called Walk Away Renee by the... Walk Away Renee by the Left Bank. Okay. And this is a song I just like rapidly Googled the lyrics and tried to... Nice. And tried to find it. I did find it. It's on my Spotify playlist. Nice. And um, yeah, I think this is going to be... It seems like it's just a really compelling story. It seems like the type of plot that... Like at first I was like, oh, is this based off a true story? But apparently it's not. This is all, this is pure fiction. Huh. And I just kind of really like these types of stories that start small. And it seems like the type of movie where it's like a chain reaction of events. Like one thing leads to another. Yeah. And kind of peeling back layers of mystery. And I, I really dig that type of movie. And I wanted to shout out in the trailer, I feel like it really crescendos at the 2.03 mark to 2.10. Okay. Just like the mix of music action and story it's just like a really i feel like every trailer every good trailer has like a moment of like five seconds where like yeah this is where i kind of get not like chills but you're like it's all happening yeah this is the big selling point and i noticed that on first watching this one i was like oh right here if you if you watch the trailer between like two 203 and 210 I, i really enjoy but yeah i'm excited for this movie do you know um I didn't see an exact release date. Is there one? Yeah. Did you, did you catch one? No, I didn't either. And I was I was actually going to ask you the same thing. And I, I was uh, trying to type into my Google search here for a release date. I, do, I actually don't know what the release date is on this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the trailer just... This is the first trailer that dropped. And it says it's in post-production still. So, you know, probably they're like probably still finishing something. up the final edit. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe early summer or late summer, fall or something. Um so maybe a six month window. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure of the release date. We'll get we'll get back to you on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this trailer it's it's fun. It definitely gets you excited for the movie. Um, you know, we'll get into this later. But my first reaction was, I wonder what the the Rotten Tomatoes uh, take on this is. <laughs> yeah, Are yeah. there any reviews yet? I was like, naturally, oh, my my automatic progression was to look it up on Rotten, but. Yeah, it's it's an exciting trailer and just really funny. Like, I mean, even if the movie is not great, this trailer is really funny. And uh, <laughs> at least we have this trailer. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, no, it's it's fun, and I definitely am curious and intrigued to watch the movie. Um, you know, Woody Harrelson, Frances McDormand doesn't do. They don't do bad movies. Yeah, she doesn't do that many movies, and so she obviously was. Struck. Doesn't do any bad movies, really. Yeah, so. that's true. It seems like. 
even Woody Harrelson, like they don't, they choose their projects carefully. Um, yeah. I think this, this director, Martin McDonough, like he has, uh, you know, a, a decent amount of esteem in the industry. Uh-huh. Uh, in Bruges was a pretty big success. It's kind of like a cult classic, which yeah. I saw about a year ago and I liked. Um, yeah, so, it's really good. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see see the kind of the impact this movie makes. Yeah. And, and, you know, if it turns out to be as good as the trailer. And he obviously attracts really good actors and, and they're all sort of, uh, yeah. you know, actor, group actor, uh, the what is it called? The, uh, the group of actors to get, yeah, an ensemble. He's, he, he's <laughs> able to construct a really good ensemble in his movies. So obviously the actors are struck by the, by the script and his writing. Um, so, so yeah, I'm definitely, definitely into it. And Sam Rockwell is great and you don't see him that often. Uh, he does a lot of independent movies and stuff. So yeah, I'm into it. I'm excited. And so this sort of, I I said last I mentioned last week that I don't watch trailers and that was a bit of an overstatement. I obviously yeah I was gonna do, I was gonna call you out but it was at the end so I was like yeah <laughs> I do watch trailers and I I love I have an Apple TV and that's sort of my streaming uh, delivery box of choice and they have the trailers app on there which is great Apple sort of compiles all the the newest and latest trailers into a a nice app and. Uh, so what I meant really was that I, I watch trailers and I watch the first trailer for a big, especially like summer blockbusters, you know, everyone wants to talk about the trailers and, you know, Star Wars hype and all that kind of thing. But I don't want to, maybe it's more of a, <clears throat> more of a state of what movie trailers are now that, that I was referring to is I don't love when a trailer gives you you know, all three, three minutes acts. and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. gives you the beginning, middle, end, and you you almost like can learn the twist or figure out what the you know what the climax is of the movie is going to be and where it's going to turn. So I don't like a movie to be ruined for me from a trailer, but I like a I like a, a mysterious yeah. sort of uh, yeah. You watch a teaser. every teaser, and so I'll watch full... I'll watch one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to watch like four trailers and get all of the jokes and all of the best moments of the film sort of, uh, you know, summarized for me in eight minutes between three different trailers. So that's where I think it it sort of hits the industry in a way because you, some people may not go see a movie because they're not, you know, they're not intrigued anymore because they feel like they've already seen it. Yeah, and I think uh, you know it's interesting. Every every like blockbuster movie or movie with a big budget, they'll also put out like the fifteen minute like featurette like a few weeks before its release, kind of showing yeah. behind the scenes. I'm of out making. on that. And just a lot of footage. So like you combine that with the teaser trailers, the full trailers, uh, any clips you see on kind of like late night talk show. I mean, you've seen like. 20 minutes of the movie before it's already come out and you might know like as you said a lot of these trailers they show kind of how each act leads into the next and there's not as much surprise i think this is a trend you've seen in like the last five to ten years and it transitions uh i think pretty nicely into our final topic which is about Rotten Tomatoes, um, which is the critic site, I think I don't think we need to be, give an explanation on Rotten Tomatoes. Everyone <laughs> yeah. listening to this knows what Rotten Have Tomatoes you, is. People heard of it, <laughs> right? And so, what sparked this conversation was uh, director producer Brett Ratner, who you may know. He did uh, some of the X Men movies, Rush Hour, um, you know, Red Dragon, which I think is his best movie. Love he's kind of like a hit. Uh, he's not an a tour director by any means. He's he's definitely done some bad movies. He's done some good commercially successful ones, mm-hmm. but 
Anyway, he was at this uh, Sun Valley Film Festival recently and said, quote, the worst thing we have in today's movie culture is Rotten Tomatoes and complains how it's now about a number. uh, This is verbatim from his quote, a compounded number of how many positives versus negatives. It's about the Rotten Tomatoes score. And he uses uh, last year's Batman versus Superman as as an example. He says, you know, the Rotten Tomatoes score for Batman versus Superman was so low that I think it put a cloud over a movie that was incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, for reference, Batman vs Superman had a uh, 27 percent Rotten Tomatoes, which, in my mm-hmm. opinion, is way too high. Um, I'll get to that yeah, in a little cost, bit. It cost yeah. 250 million, but it grossed uh, 900 oh, it, million worldwide. It was so nearly, successful. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know yeah. why he's like, oh, it didn't get like the commercial success. It's like, well, yeah, the movie was still was terribly reviewed, but people still saw it and you know made their own opinion. So it's weird that he right. chose that as an example. Um, but you know, he just goes on to say, uh, you know, people don't go, uh, don't realize what goes into making a movie like that. It's mind blowing. It's hurting the business. It's getting a lot of people, especially in like middle America. He mentions that, uh-huh. oh, it's a low Rotten Tomato score, so I'm not going to see it because it must suck. Why bother? Um, yeah, yeah, but. I don't know. He says, I, I've seen some great movies with really abysmal Rotten Tomato scores. Yes, there are exceptions. You know, for example, like Home Alone is 55% Rotten Tomato. Well, Wet Hot yeah. America, Summer. Well, but, um, I was going to mention. There's a lot to unpack here. So I don't know. Like, yeah. where, how, how do you want to start? Um, you know, what, what, what was your, your hot take from this? Uh, yeah, well, off the top, I wanted to mention, I don't think you said this. Uh, it, this was an article in, in Entertainment Weekly, and it's written by this guy, James Hibbard. Um, and it was just released this week. Um, but yeah, so obviously the, the author's sort of rebuttal and, and I guess he's, he's trying to agree with the argument. He, he uses Home Alone, which you said was 55% on Rotten Tomatoes, Hook, which was 30% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and Mighty Ducks, which was 15% fresh as his, as his examples. So I was like, okay, uh, this guy is a friend. (laughs) <laughs> this, this is a man after my own heart. This uh, this James Hibbard could be my buddy because, uh, oh, yeah. you know, he, he chose some late 90s, Childhood. early 2000 classics. Yeah. Uh, so that clearly struck a chord in my heart. But uh, yeah, it's this argument is one that we've heard before. And I know me and you have talked about this issue. And, you know, it gets a lot of chatter in the industry, the the film industry, just about what Rotten Tomatoes does to a movie and and it's it's sort of people's subconscious uh instinct to just say oh well you know let me check rotten see what's the what's the tomato meter score on this movie if you're excited and you know something like Batman last year or you know I I'm sort of thinking of uh Suicide Squad last year like oh, the yeah, trailer was, was interesting yeah the trailer was interesting people were excited for it and and then it comes and out with like a fifty percent fresh or something. Yeah, oh, then yeah. people I think it was saw even it lower than that. But but to me, I said, oh, like uh, I'm out on it. You know, I'm not even gonna bother totally. with it. Why? And and okay, maybe that one was correct and it wasn't worth seeing in the theater. And so it works both ways. Like it does save you sometimes from wasting money on a movie that you didn't want to see. But that the industry of movies is, you know, it's it's being somewhat tainted and altered by the fact that there's this uh you know rather than digging into an article and reading a full review and getting some perspective and saying oh you know you maybe you may ultimately give it a negative tomato meter score and a negative review but there are some good things in this and you may like it if you like so and so or 
if you like this in a movie or if you like comic book movies. So, uh, you know, the Brett Ratner uh, says in here that he's, you know, he appreciates the art of film criticism as, as it was, you know, and, and it's still going on today. I'm not, I'm not here to say that there are not great writers doing great criticism and journalism and going to all the film festivals and, you know, talking to directors and producers that, that is still an art form and that still happens and everything. But this, just this compilation down into one percentage as the ultimate you know, review for <laughs> yeah. over, you know, probably the majority of the country is, and especially with kids, you know, that are not reading full articles and, you know, teenagers. Well, they see that, just the know. blurb. It's almost like seeing, reading like the tweet or the headline, but not right. the article. Yeah, know, the tweet way. culture. Yeah. It makes sense for the culture we're in and like how short attention spans are. And people just want just just enough information so that they can make their their opinion on right but yeah i i, I know what you're saying like kind of quantifying this into this ultimate percentage that just makes this final stamp of is this good or bad and yeah. a movie you know movies are so complex and there's you know even like the best movies aren't a lot of them aren't perfect you know there's detractors and stuff so i guess like the the ultimate like tomato score is like when they say whether a review is fresh or rotten it's like do they more overwhelmingly recommend you see this movie or do right. they, or vice versa, do they overwhelmingly recommend you to not see this movie? And it, yeah, it's not a perfect science, but I think, um, you know, what Radner says, I, let me just go back to Batman versus Superman really quick. Sure. I got a bone to pick with that statement. <laughs> okay. Have you seen Batman? Have you seen Batman versus Superman? I did. Yes. You did. Okay. I think we talked about it afterward and I, I recall you not being a fan, but maybe not hating it as much as, as I did. So uh -huh. I saw it in theaters knowing that it was going to be terrible. I was just kind of curious. I almost did this with Suicide Squad where I heard how awful it was. And I was just kind of like my, it was like morbid curiosity of like, let right. me see the body. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when, I, when I walked out of the theater, I, I proclaimed out loud, that's the worst movie I've seen this decade. Uh. It's, the writing is terrible. The plotting is awful. There's goofy performances all over the place. The length is absurd. It's just a complete mess. And I think if you're going to argue against the merit of Rotten Tomatoes, I would pick a better example. This movie would have gotten terrible reviews, uh, regardless of what era it was released in, like before right. Rotten Tomatoes. And, he, you know, he says, Brett Ratner says, like, people don't realize what goes into making a movie like that. It's like critics are supposed to judge the final product. They know every movie has a crazy amount of effort, people, resources to put right. it together. Every critic is fully aware of that. It's not the function of the critic to judge that part of the project. They're judging the end result. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, personally for me, I think Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, it's not a perfect science, but it's a great resource. I use it all the time. It helps me spend, you know, your money wisely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why waste $15 and hours, you know, out on something that you're pretty sure is going to suck or like yeah. not be enjoyable. And I just happen to generally agree with the critics. Like these are people that watch, you know, I know critics like is a polarizing topic. A lot of people think they're just like these elitists, like, oh, mm -hmm. what do they know? Movies are subjective ultimately. Um, and well, yes, they are subjective, but I was going to say, like, they watch hundreds of new movies a year. Their job is to watch mm -hmm. new movies. They see everything. They know, like, they they see the entire spectrum of good, mediocre, bad. And, you know, I think it's it's like any other profession or expertise. Like, it's their job, you know. They, they have a, they've studied film. They have the history. They yeah. have, you know, just, like, a really deep context on what makes a good film versus not. And I'm going to align with more than their views than, like, you know, sometimes – 
some of the you know people that say like oh this is all you know like someone recommends batman versus superman so right um yeah well, I mean, he that's also kind of like my my main takeaway okay yeah and i agree with you in a lot of ways and some things i i have a counter argument on some things and in this argument or in this article excuse me um he also mentions the new netflix show iron fist it goes the same way with television shows you know they also oh, yeah. now, i heard that was awful well, well uh, yeah, it, it has a low Rotten Tomato meter score, but the audience meter, which is another thing, another meter gauge on mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes is 83% fresh. Um, so, hmm. you know, it's to say it may not be a hit with critics, but yeah. it's it's a hit with fans and people who like that sort of a thing. So, um, well, and you were talking about Batman versus Superman. I think the argument uh, actually, the, the Rotten Tomatoes effect, I'll call it, uh, sort of hits the lower maybe lower budget or or less you know a comic book movie like batman versus superman has a built-in audience yeah it's gonna make a you know close to a billion dollars even if it's terrible which maybe it was uh so it has a built-in audience but movies that maybe maybe are smaller like 10 million dollar budget independent films and let's say it gets like a 70 percent on rotten you're like okay well it's it's probably good, worth seeing, but maybe I won't go to the theater. You know, I'll wait till it comes out on Redbox or or streaming services. Um, and so those movies, I think, are impacted more by by the Rotten Tomatoes effect than yeah. something with a built-in audience that's gonna have a bunch of people go see it no matter what. Right, a seventy percent doesn't like unless it's it doesn't get you oh, excited. You're a fan of the director, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, not oh, gonna let get me you to rush pay the and 15. get out to the theater. Yeah, it's more. Yeah, red box streaming on demand in a few right. months. Right, uh, and so maybe a movie you know, that yeah. could have made a hundred million only makes twenty five million. You know, and and that's it's a slippery slope. It's a it's a fine edge of what is a a mass audience hit and what is not. You know, it it just it's it's all up to that final week before the release. You know, I'm sure the producers and directors of movies and and cast members and everybody that works on a film. You know, hundreds of people and thousands in many cases are you know anxiously awaiting that Rotten oh. Tomatoes score because they Dude, know how much of, it affects yeah. their work yeah and like think of you know just the, I heard Paul Thomas Anderson say once like every single movie that's made is a miracle even the crap right that right. Superman is a miracle I just you know crapped all over it but yeah that's what I meant saying the earlier. amount of year yeah and I guess you know this kind of goes back to what Ratner was saying which I kind of agree with like yeah, I mean, movie, you know, they can take 5, 10, 15 years to put together, whether it's all the pre-production development, putting together your director, your cast, the shooting of the film, the editing, the marketing release, which usually starts uh-huh. up to, a, you know, can start up as long as up to a year to 16 months before. And then to have it all come down to that final week and just like see the first, uh. Uh, you know, the embargo released of reviews and, you know, to see your Rotten Tomato score, like that's got to be right. such a depressing uh defeating kind of sense that you have and i I do feel bad for like any you know directors like even the worst ones are still like trying and they're putting out their art and they're trying to you know it's got to be so deflating just put yourself in their shoes you know yeah yeah. (laughs) let's say you wrote and directed a movie and you worked on it for six years you know and that's all you were working on and that's all you were thinking about and your family is like you know counting on this movie or you know whatever but uh and then all of a sudden it gets 45 percent fresh and and but the 
audience meter is 80% fresh and it only makes $10 million and you can't do your next movie that you've been writing since then. It's like, I mean, it just puts, and, and all the people, the editors and the, you know, nowadays so many movies have so much, uh, uh, computer graphics, uh, you know, computer generated yeah, effects. Uh, you know, there's hundreds of people working on any given film. So, uh, well, and the the author of this article, uh, James Hibber, did his homework, and you know, he he followed up with Rotten Tomatoes, and he reached out, uh, and he got a statement from a representative at Rotten Tomatoes named Jeff Voris, and I just want to read his quote for like sure. the counter argument, some perspective. Um, He said, at Rotten Tomatoes, we completely agree that film criticism is valuable and important, and we're making it easier than it is, than it has ever been for fans to access potentially hundreds of professional reviews for a given film or TV show in one place. The tomato meter score, which is the percentage of positive reviews published by professional critics, has become a useful decision-making tool for fans, but we believe it's just the starting point for them to begin discussing, debating, and sharing their opinions. So that, to me, sounds like, I wonder how many people have received this quote as a (laughs) follow-up to a, you know, how many journalists have written to Rotten Tomatoes looking for a quote about, you know, the the backlash to Rotten Tomatoes. And I just get the feeling that this is sort of like a canned answer that they Absolutely. they use to soothe over the opinions of skeptics. And, uh, yeah. you know, because for years uh, and, and even more so today than ever, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, you know, is affecting the general movie going audience in the U.S. And, uh, you know, but it has its place and it's a great website, a great resource. Like I sound... I sound like I hate it, but I, I actually no, go no, there no. all the time and I, you know, it's one of my home tabs and I check it out and, but it doesn't necessarily always sway me and I try to keep it in perspective and, you know, uh, maybe dive in a little deeper. If you, if you see some negative reviews and you read their little blurb, maybe click on that author, click on that critic and read his full article, you know, get some, or his or her, get some perspective on, on what they're trying to say. Don't just... You know, yeah. You can also it's about between, educating um, yourself, I guess. I was gonna say you can also filter between top critics, which they call, which are right. you know from the, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, the biggest publications in the country, versus right. like all critics, and that can be kind of like Joe Schmo at MovieBlog.com, yeah. and sometimes like if us. you're looking for more, <laughs> yeah, looking for a more accurate <laughs> representation, uh, you can filter by top critics, which usually gives you. Uh-huh. Uh, That's a best, good good yeah. point. Uh, so, one one quick thing on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, shocker! I love the the five fam- five favorite films lists that they do oh, on on the. Uh, oh yeah, it's under I the news those. tab on on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know I'm if you've sucker. ever checked that out. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big sucker for that. I I always check it out. Like maybe you know maybe once a month, and they'll post like two or three new ones. But they go around, and it's just whoever can get an interview with somebody willing to give their their five yeah, usually films a director with and, a movie coming out and yeah just right and they're usually just pretty insightful like reasons for why they like yeah it's cool movies yeah it's um, cool to see like actors and directors and uh, you know a lot of the same movies show up you always you know there's like goodfellas and godfather and apocalypse now and mm-hmm. a, you annie know a lot hall. of like a Kub- yeah. yeah annie hall <laughs> a kubrick movie thrown in there and then you see like interesting ones with a lot of international films and actually it's it's gotten me to watch a few movies that I had loosely heard of or, you know, older movies that maybe just never got to. And it's it's persuaded me to check out some stuff. So that's a cool resource, too. 
So that's it for this episode of Must Go Faster. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes and uh, check out our website, mustgofasterpod.com. Just a quick programming note, uh, I'll be out of the country this week, so we'll be taking a short break from episodes, but we'll be back with you later next week. And in the words of Dave Chappelle from Half-Baked, Abba Zabba, you my only friend. Abba Zabba, you my only friend. Mm -hmm.